So did you know that Alberta is the Texas of Canada? Yeah, I discovered this from my Canadian friends a couple of weeks ago at the His Hill Bible School. Uh, what is the His Hill Bible School? Well, uh, it's a gap year school. It's part of the, the Torchbearers International uh, Larger Group, which is a great teaching ministry and training ministry, Bible training ministry for young people. Uh, I was out there just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and you may be asking, well, what's a gap year school? Well, a gap year school is, is kind of like a year or two-year program for high school seniors, really anybody between the ages of 18 to 28, or I guess anybody could really go, but, but usually 18 to 28, and, and you go for the purpose of having some intentional Bible training, some intentional relationship training, and some intentional personal responsibility training. And after spending a week out there, I cannot highly recommend it more to you. That's a great opportunity uh, to young people and to parents. And so if you want to learn more, uh, hishill.org or torchbearers.org. So that's that little commercial for those two. I could go on and on and on. I had an opportunity to share it uh, with our veterans the other day. It's just a fantastic, fantastic place in ministry. But while I was there teaching for a week, and by the way, I did teach the book of Lamentations, um, you know, I, I was prepared, y'all know. So, so every meal, I would go sit at a different table because I wanted to you know, meet some new people and find out more about the students. And so as I moved from table to table with every meal and met new folks, I discovered that among the about 100 students that I had, I seemed to be the only person that didn't own cattle. Yeah, it was just me. I'm the only person that didn't have cows. You know, after a while, I'm moving from table to table, and it was like deja vu. You'll get it after lunch, it's fine. But, but, but all of these young people, they all own cattle. And my friends in Alberta, they own lots of cattle. In fact, I think it was Ella. I think Ella has more than 500 head of cattle. I mean, it was just crazy. I, I was blown away with all of the Texas ranchers that lived in Alberta, Canada. But I also discovered that Alberta is not just the Texas of Canada. This week I discovered that they give great Halloween advice. That's right. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Alberta issued some creative tips for Halloween this week. Uh, here's just a couple of them. They said this, going all out with your costume, fantastic. Just ensure that your mask or your hoods do not obstruct your vision. So good tip tonight if you're heading out somewhere here's another one no need to be afraid of the dark carry a flashlight wear a bright costume or add reflective material to your spooktacular get up so that motorists can easily see you a couple of good tips for you tonight if you're going out for candy if you really need some candy just come down and trick-or-treat at Lindsay's office there is plenty of candy for you right here but what about if it's not Halloween what if you can't easily see and you can't easily think and you can't easily make decisions? You can't even easily breathe sometimes because the darkness and the difficulty and the stress is so heavy and so constant. What do we do then? What do we do when, when it feels like everything in life feels like it's in the dark? Well, it's going to take more than a bright, spectacular costume. And we're going to ask Simon Peter to help us find an answer to that question. 
First Peter chapter 2, we're beginning in verse 7. Listen as Peter writes to us. This precious value then is for you who believe. Peter was writing to a group of Christians, and here's just a, a snapshot of their life. They were persecuted, they were afflicted, they were suffering, and they were tempted. They felt alone, they felt forgotten, and they felt unloved. And their family and their friends told them they were wasting time with religion. Told them that, that following after Jesus was just a, a cute fairy tale or some noble psychological lucky charm. Now, can, can we make any connections with any of those things? Have we experienced any of what some of those folks were experiencing? Well, Peter wanted to encourage them, and he begins by telling them that they have something of extreme and precious value. What was so valuable? What was this extremely precious thing that they had? Well, Peter's telling them, look, you have the extreme precious value that you are saved. You've been redeemed. You've repented. You've turned from sin, and you've turned to Jesus. You're now clinging to Jesus as your ultimate hope. Your ultimate hope to be satisfied today and your ultimate hope to be satisfied after death. Everything in their life had changed. They were now building their life around their personal salvation in Jesus. So, what about you? Has everything changed in your life? Have you repented and turned to Jesus? Are you building your life in and on and around your personal salvation in Jesus Christ? Everything had changed in their life because of it. Someone might ask, well, why do I need to do that? Why, why do I need to turn to Jesus? Why do I, why do I need to repent of sin? I'm, I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good spouse, a decent parent. I'm a, I'm a pretty good kid. I mean, I work hard. I, I make pretty good grades. I mean, I play sports. I coach Little League. I pay my bills don't have any trouble with my health. I mean, that seems to be okay. I, I'm pretty good with money, pretty good with finances. I, I give money to charity. I tip my waitress pretty good every now and then. I put my kids through college. I even buy the guy that delivers fresh donuts at the gas station a Christmas present every year. Just me? And then nobody else? It's just mine. Those are all good, noble things. There's nothing wrong with any of them. But do any of those things make you right with God? Do any of the nice, good things that we may do in life and do toward others and do with our life, do those things make us right with God? Somebody might say, well, I don't believe in God. Okay, but, but you believe in something. Everybody worships something. Think about it this way. What you talk about the most is usually what you love the most. So what do you talk about the most? It's possible that, that whatever you talk about the most could be something that you worship, could be your focus of worship. And the reason why is because that thing or that person has worth, a great deal of worth in your life. That's another way to think of worship. Worship is kind of like worth-ship. So what are some things that we could worship in life? Well, we could worship ourselves. You know, Instagram proves that. 
We could worship ourselves. We, we could worship our family. We could worship our friends. We could worship our job. We could worship our, our house, our car, the things that we own. We could worship our, our favorite sports team. We could worship our, our financial habits. We could worship our favorite political candidate. You could worship your limited edition velvet painting of Ernest T. Bass. You know, I mean, all of us, we have these things, these people, these places, all these things in our life that we could actually worship, we could put our attention on. So if you are someone that says, well, I don't believe in God, that's fine, but you might need to change your G. You may not believe in capital G God, but you believe in God. You have a God right now. You may have multiple gods right now, but you are worshiping some kind of God somewhere. And what we say as believers, we graciously proclaim this, that there is one true God, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He is the way maker and the promise keeper above all other gods. There is no one like him. Now, that's somewhat easy to say you believe. It's not always the easiest thing to live out, right? Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is, is difficult, and we get discouraged, and we get so discouraged that we're standing in the hospital, and we may have gone to church for 50 years, but we sound like temporary atheists. We do. Because for some reason in that moment, we're convinced that God is no longer God. For some reason, our circumstance, our situation somehow is more important than God. It's, it's worse than God's promise. There's no way that he could do anything. And undoubtedly, sometimes we're thinking he's not doing anything. Other times, our weekend getaways, our our community causes, our political frustrations, our, our, our sports activities, whatever it may be, they become so demanding, so time-consuming that we don't even stop to think about living out our faith. We don't even realize that our worship has changed, that, that we're worshiping God for a few minutes on Sunday morning maybe or, or maybe when we're Zooming or maybe when we're doing our devotion, but everything else in life seems to get the best of our time and the best of our worship. And when the dark times come, it makes it even harder because we're not in the habit of worshiping and enjoying God. So, because there is one God, because there is no other, I want to invite you to try to battle the darkness for a moment with the very existence of God. If you are not a Christian, then I want to ask you to consider the existence of God for a few moments. And I want you to also consider your need for Him or whether you do need Him in your mind. I realize we would say you do. And if you are a Christian, then I want to ask you to consider the existence of God for a few moments and to remember that you need to remember the existence of God, enjoy the existence of God, and embrace the existence of God. And I'm going to ask the Apostle Paul, and as I often do, the late British author C.S. Lewis to help us think through these things for just a few moments. So let's start with Paul. Paul was writing to some Christians in ancient Rome, and this is what he said to him, Romans 3, 22 and 23. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. Every boy, every girl, every woman, every man, every Democrat, every Republican, every single person that you know, every Clemson fan, every Carolina fan, every Georgia fan, every fan of the University of California at Santa Cruz banana slugs, everybody, anywhere, no distinction. Every Asian, every Albanian, every African, every American, there is no distinction. All of us, everyone, falls short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short? What means to, to not measure up? It means to lack. And so there is this lacking, this falling short, this not measuring up because of sin. And in a sense, we fall short because of sin, but, but there's a deeper sense here that when we choose to sin, we're choosing to fall short on purpose. When we choose sin, when we choose against God, we're choosing to fall short, we're choosing to lack, we're choosing to not measure up. But it hadn't always been that way. Someone described it this way, when Adam and Eve were created at first, they loved God. They cherished God. They worshiped God. They, they glorified God. They were in awe of God. They respected God. They were completely and totally dialed in. But then one day, just like a 1988 Pontiac Grand Am, they just traded God in. Traded God in because of sin. They had the, the glory of God, the majesty of God, and they, they traded it in. They exchanged it for sin. And we do it every day. We do it all day. We take the glory of God and we, we trade it in for someone or something. We get distracted in our worship and we begin to worship things that are not who God is. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're noble things. But they're not God. They're sometimes close to God. They feel kind of like things that God would approve, but they're not God. Someone broke down Romans 3.23 this way. All have sinned, all lack, all throw away, all exchange, all demean, all belittle, all trample the infinite value of the glory of God for sin. We trade it in. And because sin leads to eternal, everlasting death, therefore, we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from what we lack. We need to be saved from falling short. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus. That's why we say, turn to Jesus. And why Jesus? Because only Jesus has satisfied what you lack. Only Jesus has satisfied what you don't measure up with when it comes to God. Jesus on a hill outside of Jerusalem, was crucified to bring you to God. Therefore, we say, turn to Jesus because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So that's, that's the message from Paul, some little sound bites off of that truth. And now let's see if C.S. Lewis can help us move into thinking through that practically. C.S. Lewis was an atheist until he was in his early 30s. And why did he not believe in God? Why did he claim to be an atheist? Well, he said if you would have asked him back then, he would have said this. Well, just look at the universe around us. I mean, just look at what's happening. 
Look, look what's happening in the news. Look at this war and this terror and this disease. Look at all the heartache. Look at all of the bad things. That's why I don't believe in God. He went on to write, All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. And then he goes on. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent, omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. And then he said this. Either there is no spirit behind the universe or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil or else an evil spirit. So are you upset and angry about everything happening in the world? Are you afraid of the things that are happening in the world right now? If so, let me ask you this. Do you believe in the existence of God? And do you believe that he is in charge, that he is in control? Lewis has kind of given us a little multiple choice option here if you're struggling with that. According to him in his atheist days, he would have said the multiple choice goes like this. There is no God... God is indifferent to good and evil or God is an evil spirit. Okay, so there's, there's your three multiple choices. There's no God. God is indifferent to good and evil. God is an evil spirit. Now, I would say most people in the world don't mind choosing one of those and sticking with it. That's fine. We'll take a little multiple choice. All right, well, I'll, I'll just say there's no God then, you know. Most people will choose one of those and they'll stick with that and they'll run with it in life. But here's the problem. You have to do something with Jesus. You just do. There's something about the person of Jesus Christ that moves you beyond just the multiple choice of the existence of God. Again, Lewis put it this way somewhat famously, you must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, for Lewis... The existence of God came down to Jesus. He had to do something with Jesus. He had to move beyond the multiple choice. So you may say, well, in that multiple choice, I would have choose, chosen D, you know, other. And my other would be, I believe in the existence of God. Fine, you still have to do something with Jesus. See, Jesus moved him beyond. Jesus moved him to a point that he had to do something not just with the existence of God, but with the claims of Jesus about God and with the claims of Jesus about himself. This is how he described his conversion. And before I read it, if you're a Christian, try to remember the moment that you were converted. Try just to, to think through it. Maybe, you know, if it was, you know, at a camp or at a church and you stood on the stage, don't remember that part. Try to remember what was happening in your mind, in your heart. This is what Lewis said. You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. 
He didn't want to have anything to do with God. And then he said this, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I always think that's a funny part of the story. He didn't want to come. I don't want to come. I don't want to believe in you. I don't want to follow you, but I must. I am compelled that the truth about Jesus is not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. I'll write Narnia. I'll read all about the Lord of the Rings, but that is fantasy. Jesus is not. He was compelled by God's Spirit to say yes. He discovered the precious value that Peter's writing about. He discovered the precious value of what it means to be saved. And it changed everything. But what if you're not a believer? See, that's the promise for the believer, right? The believer has this extreme, precious value in Jesus, in the salvation of Jesus. But what if you're not a believer? What if today you're still rejecting and pushing Jesus away? Well, Peter shares something about that too. Verse 7. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. The religious people, especially the religious leaders, in the day of Jesus, they rejected him. They just turned away from him. They, they considered him a traitor, a, a liar, a blasphemer. And they thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, really, they were like, man, this Jesus, he's, he's just too wild and too radical for our church. You know, we, he's just too wild and radical. We, we can't do it. But here's the thing. They were wrong. They were wrong. They, they rejected the very cornerstone of God. They rejected the one that God has chosen to build his entire kingdom on. If you think heaven is just about angels, you are completely missing the story. The kingdom of God is built on Jesus. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It all goes through Jesus. But he was a little too radical, so they rejected him. So what about you? Are you rejecting Jesus today? Are you pushing Jesus' ways? Is, is he demanding more than you really want, or do you just still not see any need for him? We would plead with you today that, that God, very non-accidentally, is building his entire kingdom of eternity on Jesus Christ. Do not reject God's cornerstone. Turn to him today why Peter goes on verse 8 and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed you ever been walking somewhere and you, and you tripped on something you kind of didn't see it <laughs> you probably did it this week. I did it this week. You know, you're walking along, you trip on something, and you're like, you have no idea, and you stop and you look, you know, because you want everybody around you to know, hey, I, I'm not a moron. You know, I tripped on something back there. And you kind of stop and you look to see what was there, and there's nothing, you know, so you have no idea what you tripped on. Well, God put Jesus front and center in front of the entire known world. 
and almost everybody in the world tripped over him. And they turned, and they looked back, and they saw him, and they said, eh, I'm just going to move on. And in essence, they did one of the most tragic things they could ever do in life. They stumbled over their own eternity. One of the most terrorizing things in the universe is waking up on the other side of death and realizing that you stumbled over Jesus and you've been separated from God for all eternity. I read something this morning that said the most decrepit person in the world today is immortal. And I was like, huh? It's true. The Bible tells us that everyone lives forever, either as a friend of God or as an enemy of God. So what are you doing with your immortality today? Have you turned to Jesus today? What about that appointed doom part? Man, come on, Dal, it's Halloween. Why are you going to bring all that doom and curse down? What's interesting, the the tense of the verbs here in the Greek language show present activity. So the people were presently rejecting. They were presently disobeying. So in a sense, no pun intended, Peter seems to stop short of saying this is set in stone. So in other words, there seems to be this sense that the hope is that they will stop rejecting Jesus and they will repent and turn. And we would say that today, if you're not a believer, that is our hope for you as well that you would stop rejecting, that you would turn, that you would embrace who Jesus is, that you would receive his salvation. So although from a human perspective, we may not understand the deepest part of, of this doom and this appointment, the great thing is the Bible was not written for intellectuals. It was written so that even a child can understand. So what do we need to understand about this? Well, here's what we need to understand. If you reject Jesus, you will be separated from God forever. If you reject Jesus, your life will not be built on the cornerstone of satisfying eternity. And Jesus said that people who reject him will be cast into utter darkness. So yes, stress and fear and anger may create some darkness in our life today, but to be separated from Jesus means darkness forever. That's what happens to those who disbelieve. But what about those who believe? What about those who don't reject Christ? What about those who don't stumble, but but they embrace the choice cornerstone? They embrace the truth of Jesus. What happens to them? Well, we're going to unpack this a little more next Lord's Day, but but let's just look at it, peek at it for just a moment. Verse 9, Peter says this, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what? Who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So all the way back to the beginning, how can you have confidence when your whole life feels like it's in the dark? How can you have confidence when your life feels like deep, dark discouragement, when it feels like everything is falling apart? How can you have confidence? Here's how. Because to be saved, to be in Christ, to be a believer, to be a follower of Jesus means this, you no longer fall short. You no longer lack. 
You no longer don't measure up. You aren't belittling. You aren't trespassing. Now, now you've been redeemed. Now you've been saved. Now, because of Jesus, everything has changed. That means when you're in the dark, you can say to your soul, soul, this present darkness is not permanent darkness. Boy, it doesn't feel that way in the moment, though, does it? Gosh, it, it feels permanent. That difficulty with your spouse, that difficulty with your child, that difficulty with your aging parent, that difficulty with your grandchild, that difficulty with your health, that darkness, it feels permanent. It feels like it's never going to go away. And that's why you must become a preacher. All Christians should be preachers. You have to preach to your soul. And in that moment, you preach to your soul. This present darkness is not permanent darkness. Jesus died to guarantee that this is not permanent darkness. So you can have confidence in the dark because you can keep saying to your soul, hey soul, you were called out of the darkness and you have been ushered into marvelous light. And no president and no queen and no law and no lost game and no health problem and nothing else in the universe can change that. You have been guided, invited, brought into the marvelous light of Jesus and nothing will change that. When you're in the dark, preach that to yourself. Preach to yourself. And if you can't find the words, then read a little something from Revelation. Better yet, tattoo this on your brain. Memorize these verses. Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city... The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There will be no night there. There will be night here. There will be night here. There's no way to avoid it. There will be discouragement. There will be darkness. There will be stress. There will be anger. There will be pain. We cannot avoid it. You can't run away from the hospital and run away from the cemetery and run away from the difficulty in your home. There is darkness here, but not there. Not there. And guess what? not here sometimes too, right? There's a lot of light here. We're experiencing tons. Look at the windows now. Man, we're in the light. But one day, there will be no more night. So, how can you have confidence in the dark? Because when you're in the dark, when you're in that moment, you can say to your soul, soul, this present darkness is not permanent darkness because I no longer fall short 
of the glory of God. I have been ushered in to the marvelous light of God and no one can snatch me from that light. This present darkness is not permanent darkness because of Jesus. And with Jesus, one day, there will be no more night.